You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Join the Living Dead, recorded on May 22, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. If you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, or if you have an electronic Bible, if you'd open your electronic Bible to Luke chapter 14, we're going to jump into verse 25 in a second. The first step to becoming a disciple of Christ is hearing his voice invite you to follow. To be a disciple, the first step is hearing him, hearing the gospel, hearing someone declare Jesus Christ died for your sins and something in you knows that the Holy Spirit is talking to you. You may not even know it is the Holy Spirit. God is pulling you. And you hear his voice inviting you, saying, come, follow me, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. You hear that invitation and you say, okay, I think that's a good idea. I want to come to God. But the second step The one that follows immediately after that is considering the cost. And you may not do that at first. So Jesus, in in the Bible text, in several places, kind of forces it on people who are thinking about following him. Have you counted the cost? Because he wants you to count the cost up front. He doesn't want you to become a follower of his and count it later. Count on the way in, all right? If, if you're walking up to the altar to get married and, and you went up there and then you heard the vow, till death do us part, you well, wait a minute, I'm just hearing this part. I thought we could just ease in softly to this thing. No, it's to death do us part, richer for poor, all that stuff. Can we have a lower level membership that I can work up to? No, you're all in on day one and even more so with Christ. And so Luke 14 is where we're looking, verse 25. Last week, if you were here, we, um, we saw Jesus giving us part of counting the cost and talking about how, um, where you live, <laughs> whom you live with, what you do for a living, all are forfeited to Christ if you will be his follower. And you might have thought, well, that's a big cost. That's got to be as great as it gets. Well, no, it gets even more expensive. Look at verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied Jesus. That's him. And he, now, great crowds are coming. That, that seems like a good thing. You know, you, you got the crowds. You're winning. You got the mega church going thing here, Jesus. You're going around healing everybody, which always brings great crowds. I wish I could just heal people. I know I get great crowds. If you don't believe it, um, just, just think of everyone in here who has, um, has uh, eye trouble or knee trouble. Um, if, if I just said eye and knee trouble, I probably have just probably 80% of the people in all the campuses right now. If I could just, in a moment, heal you, boom, all eyes and knees are better. I guarantee you, next week, we wouldn't be able to fit the people in the buildings. You'd be like, if you go here, Jesus is going to heal you of everything. And he did that, and so great crowds, and plus his teaching was amazing, because he's God. His teaching was so amazing in the Bible, all over the place, it says people would hear him teach, and it says, and they would marvel. They would marvel. They would sit and go, wow, wow, did you hear that? They, they, would, they would be blown away. There was even some of his critics, some of the Pharisees sent some, some spies to check him out and to give him a hard time. And, and, and they started to give him a hard time and then they were listening to him and they were blown away by him. And then they went back to their, the guys who sent them, kind of different people. And they said, and, and, and the Pharisees noticed that we sent you there to give him a hard time. Are you now a follower of his? And their answer to him was, no one's ever spoke like he spoke. I mean, to hear Jesus speak, you would give up eating. 
People literally gave up eating. That's why he had to do the miracles with fish and bread. They would give up eating because they wanted to hear him speak. So he had great crowds. This looks like a great success, but then he is going to winnow them out when he says, in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, parents, and wife, and, and, and I guess we'd have to assume husband if you're a woman, and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, look at these words, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot. Not may not, not will not, not possibly not, cannot. So he's giving you a condition. I heard the invitation, here I am. Well, here's the condition. You may, not, you may want to accept the invitation, but you know what? Many are called, but few are chosen. So you heard that once about a, a church where everyone was sleepy and didn't really love God. As many are cold and a few are frozen. <laughs> First church of the frigid air. Many are, many are called, but not everyone gets in. Because if you don't hate, now that hate is a very strong word. Hate is a word we tell our kids, don't say it about people. And, and I think generally that's, that's true. You can hate Satan. You give them permission to hate Satan, pretty much no one else. right? Now, it's hyperbole. In other words, it's exaggeration. It is exaggeration. Jesus is using an extreme word for a, for a, for a very good reason. We know it's exaggeration because he teaches us all over the Bible uh, and from his own lips that we're to bless those who curse us, to love our enemies. So we shouldn't be, we definitely shouldn't be hating our parents or hating our spouse or hating our family in the nor- normal sense of the word. But just because it's hyperbole doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. Don't take the teeth out of it. It's a condition of coming to him that the follower renounces all claims of family, friends, and even his own life. You renounce. You set them aside. Note the emphasis on relationship is central to following Jesus. There is not a religion like this on the planet, is there? Is there? Think about all the religions you know about. You may only know of a few, but is there any of them where the God of the religion is really just wants a friendship with you? And he wants that friendship to be exclusive. It's very relational. But notice that, that, that he becomes the defining relationship in the life of his followers. No one else. You say, well, what do you mean defining relationship? Okay, everyone must remember the 10th, 11th, or 12th grade, grade crush, right? And if you're in the 9th grade, maybe you have it in the 9th grade. But um, that's that delicious time when the whole world turns to magic for some strange reason. Um, and, and, and normally what happens is you have a, it doesn't happen to you first, you have a friend. You can be a guy or you can be a gal. And your friend is always there for you. Your friend is always ready to talk to you. Your friend's always on the other end of the phone for you. Your friend wants to hang out with you. And then all of a sudden your friend disappears. Your friend is never around. You never see your friend. Why? Because your, your friend is with his girlfriend. All of a sudden, everything's her. Everything's her. And with guys, they're like, oh, great, he's no fun anymore. You can't get him to do anything. He's always with his girlfriend. Now, girls, you're worse. Oh, I've heard you. I have daughters. Oh, man. You, you make it a capital offense. She used to like us. Now she blows us off for him. Oh, he's so important. I don't say... When guys get rough, 
they're rough, but when girls get rough, it, it's purgatory, baby. <laughs> Guys, they might beat you up once. <laughs> girls will tear into you. But, but we understand that when you're the person who falls in love with somebody. All of a sudden, you're like, I don't care if you hate me. I don't care what you say about me. This is the love of my life. This is my defining relationship. Chad, <laughs> Bill, if you're a girl. <laughs> Jenny, Carol, whatever her name is. Your parents stop mattering. Your friends stop mattering. You don't even care about your dog. Jesus doesn't want to just be your first priority. He wants to be the overwhelming, defining relationship in your life. In other words, you can always say, well, my priorities in life are first Jesus, then my wife, if I'm speaking to myself, then my kids, then my church family, and you know, I can do that, whatever. That's not what he wants. He doesn't want top priority. He said you have to hate them. I have one priority. There's only one friendship that matters. Now, the reason why, to give you a place where this sermon doesn't go, but so that Satan doesn't have a foothold. The reason why you will still love people is in Christ. Christ loves my wife. So I'm going to love her. But he's the only one. It's not just first place. It's the only place. Christ loves my children, and he uses me as a tool in their lives to love them. Christ loves my enemies. But it's not, well, he's first. I love you a lot, honey, but I love Jesus more. It's not that. That's not it. It's I love Jesus Period. He's the consuming, defining relationship. Third thing to know is he expects this level of commitment from day one. He doesn't let you work up to this. He says, you can think about following me as long as you want, but when you're ready to follow, this is what I want. It's on the application. You know, there's two check boxes. Do you hate father and mother? Yes, no, yes, no. Do you hate husband and wife? Yes, no. You've got to check yes to all of them, day one. Really gets rid of the, the casual Christian, the casual churchgoer, the person who thinks they're going to buy off Jesus by a little time in church. Generally a good life. Move to verse 27 because you might think, well... Dang, that is a big condition. But you know what? I never really liked my parents anyway. It's no big loss. <laughs> so it's about to get harder. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. Here's that word again. What's that word? Cannot. It's not may not, will not, might not want to be. Cannot. Impossible to be my disciple. Following Jesus just got even costlier. Why a cross? Why did he say must bear a cross? We're so used to the cross because we're 2,000 years on the other side of it that it seems like a normal thing to us. It seems like a beautiful thing to us. It is a beautiful thing to us. I love songs with a cross in it. You know, we all have cross jewelry or cross symbols on our t-shirts, you know, but the cross was not such a positive image when Jesus said this. And in fact, no one knew that the cross would become a positive image either. No one knew at that moment except Jesus himself on the entire planet that Jesus was going to die on a cross and that through that death on a cross mankind would be set free God would be glorified and resurrection from the dead would be made possible no one knew any of that except Jesus the Pharisees didn't know the Romans didn't know the apostles didn't know the crowd didn't know so what did they hear when they heard you must take up your cross they weren't even hearing hey you know what to be in our organization it's going to take some sacrifice I mean you got a hockey coach 
He's standing there looking at his team in black and gold and saying, hey, I know they're Tampa Bay, but we're going to have to sacrifice we want this. No staying out late, no drinking, work hard, have your skates ready, you know, whatever you say to hockey players. Hit people hard, skate fast, shoot pucks, whatever. This is going to take sacrifice. He's not even like a soldier. This is going to take sacrifice. He's not saying that. He's saying you have to take up a cross. Why a cross? I'm going to give you two reasons, and these aren't in your regular map, so if you're a person who likes taking notes yourself, the two reasons are, one, it changes the way the world looks at you, and two, it changes the way you look at yourself. First, it changes the way the, way the world looks at you. The cross is not... See, you could be sacrificial, and people can actually admire you. You sacrifice for your children. You sacrifice for the poor. You sacrifice for orphans. You sacrifice for the unborn. You sacrifice for others. You sacrifice for the church. That's almost admirable. But the cross does not have that effect in the first century when Jesus was saying it. The world will look at you as, get this, refuse is what he's saying. The world will look at you as refuse. That which you would throw away because you don't want it on your clothes. Just as they looked at Jesus. See, the cross, the only reason you'd carry a cross, those words in their head would mean, okay, if you carry a cross, we are told by Jesus that we have to carry it daily, which would make no sense to them in in a practical way because normally if you're carrying a cross first, you didn't make the choice. The government, the Roman government, made a decision for you. You will be carrying this today. But fortunately, you don't have to carry it long and you don't have to carry it far. Unfortunately, when the carrying is over, they will strip you till you are naked and nail you to it, and you will die. So to say you have to carry your cross is not the same as some kind of noble sacrifice. It's associated with shame. Being stripped naked always gets me there. The the Romans would nakify you before they killed you. Never heard that word before, have you? (laughs) Just made it up. It means take off all your clothes. You know, in all the pictures, they, thankfully, there's, there's something over the crucified people, you know, that you see on the hill. And I'm glad for those pictures having that discretion. But in real life, that's not the way it was. Now, there, there is one or two out of a thousand people who are exhibitionists, the streakers who run out on the field in the football game or something weird like that. But most of us do not want to be naked in public. Most of us, once in a while, have a dream. We're caught in our underwear in public. We wake up ashamed. Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to a cross. Well, if you take a cross, shame goes with it. You're also a criminal. You're also a criminal. (laughs) You're a criminal. And and if you don't think that makes an effect on your friends, it does. The person they used to like, they don't like him anymore. Because he's a criminal. I think Jerry Sandusky. And this, by the way, I, I use him as an example not to justify his crime. His crime was awful. But that makes him a perfect example. He had a lot of people saying how great he was. A lot of people saying he was their friend. Now, boom, he's a criminal. How many friends he got? He can count them on one finger. That's what a cross is. It's shame. It's eminent execution. It's total loss. It's not a nice way to do sacrifice. Let's fill in a blank here. To bear a cross is to willingly embrace shame. 
to willingly embrace rejection and willingly embrace persecution. Why? Because Jesus is hated by the spiritual powers that rule the world. He's hated by Satan, and yes, there are spiritual forces. And therefore, by the way, he's hated by wicked mankind, which was you and me before he saved us. Sinners hate Jesus. You think, I didn't hate him. You did if you'd have seen him straight. Every time you saw him, you hated him. To follow Jesus is to join him in being hated, despised, and rejected. Following Jesus into the world would be like wearing an I Love Jerry Sandusky shirt to a child care convention. Not that you should, by the way. I'm just trying to find an illustration as graphic as the reality of the fact that Jesus is hated by the world. And when he says to bear your cross, he's saying, share my shame. Share my rejection. It's an amazing thing throughout church history. You will find the church in every generation is challenged to sell out Christ to make what they have more palatable to the powers that be in the world so they are not hated. It's not new to our generation. It's every generation from the beginning. That pressure will never go away. There will always be the pressure to conform this bathroom thing, it ain't going away, folks. Now, you can't hate people. It's not going to be good if you pontificate and tell lost people how lost they are. But you can't compromise. People born boys are boys. No matter what confusion's overtaken them because of the fallen nature of sin. People born girls are girls. And we can't compromise on that. And there will be Christians who do. Feminism has, has been one of the chief, in our age, forces that forces compromise onto the church. Because... Because, and, and I'll give you a practical reason why, in my own insight, you don't have to take this as gospel, but often men just don't want angry women. There's nothing that makes a man more afraid than an angry woman. I'm not kidding. Men will do weird things to get away from an angry woman. So back in the 60s and 70s when people said, well, women should be able to pastor men just like men are the pastors of women. Well, the Bible says this. They sold it out. So it's not a surprise that there are churches selling out to gay marriage. Heck, there's a lot fewer verses on that. If we could sell out that other principle when the feminists yelled at us in the 70s, this one's easier. And, and the reason we want to sell out is because what we feel is the shame and hate and rejection of the world telling us how awful we are coming up against us. And there's no place where this is worse than the cross. For the cross testifies to the world that its deeds are evil. Jesus says the world hates me because I testify that his deeds are evil. He came to love us. We hated him. And they know it spiritually. And then every Christian shares that. Every Christian should study the Bible and know your Bible. It should be your favorite book. But after that, I think if you have to study one other thing, you should study Christian history. Should, shouldn't you say theology? Theology is a close third. I mean, it's really close, but history is better because it has the theology in there, and it'll also show you that, that, that every... Look, you want to see the church as its best? It's when it's despised, when they're feeding us to lions, when they're burning us at the stake. That's when we grow because that's when we're sharing his shame. You want to see us at our worst? It's when we're running governments. You see, in this age, we're made for a cross, not a crown. 
We're made to identify with the one who is hated and rejected. So when he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you'd better take up that cross. He means the way the world's going to look at you is as refuse. If you get this right, I'm not saying it's going to be everyone you meet every day, but you will be rejected. Let's look at the Bible on this. I'm going to throw a lot of verses at you. Well, several, not a lot. Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. This is why when, 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 when Peter first got out of jail for the first time after being beaten, beaten, beaten is not a good thing. If you punch me in the head once, you've just given me a big emotional problem. If you continue to hit me, that's really bad. I don't even like one punch. They get out of jail, they go, they were rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Why is it? It was, Jesus said, hey, it's going to happen. Here's one we can fill in some blanks. John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's never personal. It's never personal when they hate you for Christ's sake. It may sound personal. It may look personal. It may feel personal. But it's, if you give up, the, if you sell out the master, they'll stop. It's about him. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That's why so many churches sell out. hate to say it. You know, every, every Christmas and Easter time and Newsweek and all those magazines, they put out a magazine to try to get us to buy it. And, and I've fallen for this trap more than once because they normally put a picture of Jesus on the front, right? And there's Jesus there with some kind of nice looking art. He's doing some kind of wild pose. And his fingers are normally in some kind of, I don't know. <laughs> he's always got these, I think it's some kind of Jesus gang sign he's doing secret sign then you read it you open it up and here's a bunch of people who are called reverend pastor priest holy who are selling out the faith they're giving the world's way of thinking and adding jesus words to it if if the world if you're of the world they would love its own but because you're not of the world i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you john the gospel writer who heard that perhaps 50 years later or more, wrote these words. Don't be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. He's like, I've lived this out for the last five decades. <laughs> Are you shocked? Are you shocked that they think you're nuts? That they call you names? I heard one preacher recently say that one of the things most discouraging to him about uh, the gay marriage issue was he knows so many Christians in his own church who love and are open to men and women who struggle with homosexuality, but they never get a chance to say it. Because they're, they're told, everyone says how awful they are before they even get a chance to have the conversation. Well, John says, don't be surprised at that. You're always going to be swimming against the upstream. You're always going to have to fight against bad PR because the devil's on their side. Love them all. 2 Timothy 2, or 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You might say, well, I've avoided it till now. Only one of two things is happening. <laughs> Either one, you're not really wanting to live a godly life, or two, it's about to happen. Now, we live in a great country, one that is a historical anomaly, where the church, the true church, is able to live 
well, the law is protecting us mostly. But I don't know if you've noticed, that's crumbling away. And, and, and instead of panicking and thinking that we're supposed to wear the crown and thinking, we're going to take our nation back. Christian, it was never your nation. You have a nation. And you have a king. And you're a citizen of it. And that never changes. But if you think you're going to bring the kingdom through taking over the government, you're mistaken. You were always mistaken. I think governments can get a little better, a little worse, but they are not the way God brings in his kingdom. And so you're saying, I don't know what we're going to do. First, stop panicking. Don't buy bullets. I mean, buy bullets, but use them to shoot Bambi. I'm serious. Christian, some of you are buying bullets because you're waiting to shoot people. We've got to take this country over. You'll end up dead. People who live by the sword die by the sword. Don't you realize that if the whole nation turns pagan and we stay faithful, we got them right where we want them? That's how the church was born. The Roman Empire, for 325 years, we weren't even legal. 311. And we took over. Not the government. The hearts of the people. We are here to shine, baby. We are here to shine. And there's one, there's one uh, of our brothers in Christ who died centuries ago said, when being burned at the stake, we are a candle that's going to light London. Well, I don't want to shine like that, but if we have to. <laughs> and look at this. Here's one worth writing down. That's why it's underlined here. Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you. Granted means given to you as a gift. Well, what's the gift I get? That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. That is a good gift. I get faith as a gift. Yep, there's another one here. But also to suffer for his sake. It's a gift. Jesus Christ took the cross on himself. He bore the sin and shame that you and I deserved on this world. He proved that the righteousness of this world is not righteous at all. For when the one righteous man walked among us, the Son of God himself, what we did was we tried him in our religious courts, we tried him in our secular courts, and we found him guilty, though he did nothing wrong, of something that was worthy of death. We put him to death, and even as he died, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he proved that we're all unrighteous. As righteous as a person ever can be. I don't care how many good, good Samaritan badges you have in the back of your RV. As righteous as you'll ever be is summarized in a naked man dying, bleeding, beaten by you on a cross. It's as righteous as you get. The killer of Jesus. He bore our shame so that he could forgive our sins. And he rose from the dead. And then he doesn't say to sinners, come here, I'll clean you up. Make you turn into good people. He says, come to me and die. And I will give you life. And that, look, we bear the cross as shame because the world hates the gospel. Uh, let me give you a text that's not in your notes. If you're taking notes, write down 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. It says this. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. As you go through this world being hated, it's a triumph. <laughs> and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are like a, a perfume of Jesus. We're Jesus' perfume. Oh, de Christa. 
We are a Jesus perfume. And look what it says. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are the smell of God to everybody. But notice it's a magic fragrance because it smells one way to one group and one to another. For the, to one a fragrance from death to death. I do not want to smell that. I have smelled that. You have smelled that. Who has not walked by something dying or dead or maggot covered and went, oh my word. That is the fragrance of Christ to those who are perishing. And that's why they hate us. But from life to life, to those being saved. You know, somebody's lost in their sin, they're doing wickedness, they're feeling the pain of it, they hear of Christ, and all of a sudden they think someone opened the window and springtime came rushing in, and it was you. There's life. So to take up the cross changes the way the world looks at you, but the second thing is, the other half of the story is, is it changes the way you look at yourself. See, you're not just sacrificing, which may make you think you're a hero. I mean, you want to see heroes? People who jump on grenades to protect their brethren in battle. That's a hero. Someone who pushes someone out of the way of a car and then takes the hit themselves. That's a hero, right? That's not taking up your cross. Taking up your cross is taking up your shame and your death, saving no one, pushing no one out of the way. What you're doing is you're wiping out the problem. You. There's no way of getting around it. The Bible says we're sinners. We're the problem. God's solution is not to fix us. It's to execute us. You're not pushing someone out of the way or jumping on a grenade. You're wiping out the problem. You. But there's freedom there. That's where our freedom is. That's where you get free. I like using addicts when I talk about sin, not because addicts are the worst sin, but they are the most graphic example of how sin is for people who aren't addicts. Sin enslaves. Sin grabs you. You want it. You have to have it. You'll do anything to get it. You'll lie when caught doing it. So what a heroin addict acts like is what every sinner acts like. It's just easier to see. Well, there's no way, better way to free a heroin addict than if he dies. I'm not saying I want heroin addicts or anyone to die, but logically, <laughs> the problem is the desire within his heart. If he's dead, it goes away. See, if you take up your cross, you're dead. And a dead man is free from sin's power. Now, I think the objection that should be raised to this is this. I thought that we got free from our desire to sin by reading the Bible and obeying the Ten Commandments. Isn't that why all those commandments are there? To get us to do the right thing and to be freed from sin. The answer, believe it or not, is no. They are to display, why did God give the Ten Commandments? Why did he tell us his right to stand? So we do them. Uh Uh-uh. If you could, yes, but you can't. It was to show his standard and your sin. Well, why? Just so I'll have a bad self-esteem? No. So you'd feel helpless. And when you saw the cross where Christ died for you, it would look like a good thing. In other words... The righteous state, all the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, they won't help you be holy. In fact, they do the opposite. They show you how bad you are, and they even make you worse. Romans 7, 5, for while we were living in the flesh, and and, and in here when he says flesh, he means the old 
way of sin. Not necessarily in a body, because you're still in a body when you're saved. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law. What wakes up sin in you? What wakes up the desire to sin in you? What arouses sin in you? It's right there, the law. God's good and righteous and perfect law makes you want to sin. We're at work in our parts to bear fruit for death. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, verse 8, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Don't believe this is true? Try out your one and a half or two year old boy, mama. Now don't touch that. He wasn't even thinking of touching that. Soon as you said don't touch that, horns grew out of his head. He smiled because you were so far away you weren't going to stop him. And he went, let's see what she does. Hopefully you lost a screw and let him know, don't you mess with mama. That's, your, that's the fight you want to win. But the law caused him to sin. He wants to sin. He wants to sin. When the speed limit was 55, I always wanted to drive 72. I always wanted to drive 65. Speed limit 65, I want to drive 75. Speed limits, I place 70, I want to drive 80. What the heck is wrong with me? Just tell me, can't do it, I want to do it. That's sin in me. The spiritual disease resident in every man, woman, boy, and girl grows stronger when told to obey God. Did you catch that? I'll say it again. These are my words, not the Bible, so you don't have to memorize them, but it's a truth from the Bible. The spiritual disease resident in every man, woman, boy, and girl grows stronger when told to obey God. That's what, for you scholars, Romans 7 is all about. He's saying, every time I wanted to do good, I would try to do it by the law, and I found it only made the sin in me stronger. Who will save me? The answer is the cross saves you. If you're dead, the sin in you's dead. Well, how can I die without dying? Aha! Well, if someone will die in your place, you can spiritually die with him. That's the cross. Listen, what I'm saying here, I, these, the truths I'm giving you from the scripture here, I have thought about, wrestled with, enjoyed, been confounded by, grown in, felt like I fell backwards in, continue to think about, they have become the most important thing in my life for decades. So if this is not new to you, it does not mean it's not worth your time. I know that. But if it is new to you, you're like, wait, I'm really trying to process being dead and alive at the same time. I'm telling you, this is the heart of the Christian life is this. The old self dies and you get a new self. And it really happens. It's not just you taking the old self and learning to make him behave. He won't. The old self must die. And the scripture is filled with this. Your experience will not tell you this right away. You will have to believe it first, then experience it. It's by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. 2 Corinthians 5 Uh, Or Romans 6.3 says, Do you not know that all of those who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
Not the water baptism. That's just a symbol. When you receive Christ, you joined the cross with him. You are free, therefore, not just from the punishment of your sin. We talk about that when you get saved. Oh, all your sins are washed away. They are. He has paid the price. God is satisfied with the offering of Jesus. You no longer need to pay. You're completely free from the guilt. But what about the power over sin? A lot of us get cowardly there, and we want to say, no, you don't have power over sin. Just expect to sin constantly until you die, and Jesus makes you holy. That's not what the Bible teaches. Second Corinthians 5.14, And for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The mystery of the Christian life is this. To live means to die daily. To live means to die every day. And I don't mean jump on a grenade and save someone. If a grenade is there and there are people around, yes, jump on the grenade and save them. You'll go to heaven and it's the right thing to do. But when the Bible talks about dying, it's not talking about that, you being the hero. It's talking about the fact that your old nature is the problem and needs to die. And so as you receive the Holy Spirit, the Christian life is every day a fight between going backwards to your old dead nature, which does not have power over you, according to the scripture, but it feels like it does. Okay, that's where the tension is, your feeling versus believing what the scripture says. Or you're renewed in your mind, and you're thinking, I have the Holy Spirit in me. I have the power in me. You see, the Bible doesn't really say that. I could show you all day. I only have a couple more texts, but here's one. Romans 7, 6. But we are now are released from the law, having died. Not symbolically, we died to that which held us captive. Done. Can't get a slave to work if he's dead. Sorry, Satan, I'm dead. So that we serve. How do we serve? In the new way. There's another way, yes. It's not by obeying the law, because the law is written on our heart. It's in the new way of the Spirit, and not the old way of the law, the written code. See, that, to put it another way, because I know some of you are saying, this is too much for my brain, Mike, slow down. Just keep working it for the rest of your life. Because <laughs> the Christian life is, is not about trying to be and do good. It's just not. It's not about trying to be a good Christian. I never try to be a good Christian. I did try to be a good Christian when I was a new Christian. I never felt saved and I never felt good. Then I realized I can't be a good anything. Then I realized what Paul said. I know that no good thing dwells in me. That is in my flesh. So where does goodness come from? It is given to me as a gift. Or to use the theological language, the righteousness of God is imputed to me. It's given to me as if I'm righteous, even though I'm not. The goodness you receive is a gift. Then why should Christians do good if they're forgiven? My question is, why wouldn't you? Because I got the Holy Spirit in me. I want what's good now, and I'm empowered to do what's good. I don't want to do what's bad. I fight with my old nature. Just like you do. But the Holy Spirit within sets us free. The secret of the Christian life is that the Holy Spirit empowers us to overcome sin. And often, a, a, a true Christian will live in defeat just because they won't believe that and won't try it. As one great Christian has said, it's not that the 
Christian way has been tried and found too difficult, it's that the Christian way has been thought too difficult and left untried. You've got to believe first. Another text, not in your notes, but you can mark it down, Colossians 1.27. To them, God, Colossians 1.27, say it again. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have Christ in you right now. Now, your mind and emotions may be dominated by your old flesh, your old attitudes, and they're bad. Self-pity, anger, hatred, fear, jealousy, covetousness. Well, I, you, you know the list. But they don't have to be. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the mind of Christ. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, his son wrote of his life, and he talked about his, the secret to living. And the name of the book is... Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. They don't work hard on titles. They just tell you what they're about. He said, Taylor had many secrets for he was always going on with God. Yet they were but one. One simple secret. And God used him mightily. You want to read about a man God used? Read about Hudson Taylor. The simple, profound secret of drawing for every need, whether temporal or spiritual, upon the fathomless wealth of Christ. He knew Christ was within him every day. His secret was, quit trying to be good. Let the good God within you live. I mean, you don't let him live, but you know what I mean. Yield. Look, the rhythm of the disciple is the rhythm, the daily rhythm of death to self, life to Christ. And that's Galatians 2.20, often repeated by me. I hope I repeat it so often you get sick of it. Because if you, well, first you won't get sick of it, because you, if you love Jesus, you won't get sick of his word. And, and we want it branded on our brains. I have been crucified. I have been crucified. I was not symbolically crucified. I was not metaphorically crucified. When Christ died, my old nature somehow was crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's not I who live. It's no longer me. It's not me. But it is Christ who lives in me. It's right there in the scripture. You read it, but do you believe it? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by trusting God. By pistos, Greek trust, faith, reliance on the Son of God. Who loved me who's motivated by his kindness towards me and gave himself for me. In case I wonder if this is all true, it must be Jesus went to great lengths to prove it. I have the power to live the Christian life. The doorway to a holy life is not effort, it's faith. All right. I've made the case I came here to make. So let's, let's go to the final verse of our chapter, of our text, verse 33. So therefore, Jesus said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot, that's the third time he says it in this chapter, you cannot be my disciple. To renounce, according to our language dictionary, is to formally declare that you refuse to follow, obey, or support someone or something any longer. I have to refuse to follow, obey, or support formally parents, spouses, children, friends, and myself. Myself. 
Jesus becomes the defining relationship in my life or the world. Are you ready to embrace daily living at odds with God or with the world and live with God? Are you, daily to, are you willing daily to embrace living at odds with your own nature? Are you willing to be a disciple? There, and by the way, you think, well, no, I'll just be a Christian. There's no, 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 no. That only works in the world of men. In the world of God, there is no two standards. You're either a disciple or you're not. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.